you know, I think times of crisis puts a, a magnifying glass on your strengths and puts a magnifying glass on your weaknesses. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by Matthew Dildeen. He's the CEO at the Fresno Mission and has a wealth of knowledge. He comes from a background as a law firm partner and brings some of the lessons he learned in law school to how he approaches raising money for the community in Fresno and how he leads his team to think differently about solving the problems that they are focused on. During our conversation, we talk about a range of topics, including the need to move from transactional fundraising to relational fundraising. We talk about the pivot from golf tournaments, galas, and grandiose events to thinking more about how do we embed experiences that are founded on the purpose of our organization and invite people to be a part of it as a way to engage with the mission. We talk about the need to acknowledge generational shifts and the move towards recurring funding models like monthly giving programs and partnerships, but also even rethinking how we measure ROI of our fundraising programs. We even then talk about an idea he calls radical partnership. There is a wealth of knowledge and I'm grateful that Matt was able to join us. So let's dig into our conversation. Matt, you're currently the CEO at Fresno Mission, but before we dive into the work that you do at Fresno and kind of all the interesting challenges and successes that you all are pushing through um, in your community, I want to kind of take a step back and better understand what got you to this point. How, how did you become the CEO at Fresno? What was kind of the squiggle or the journey that you took to be in the role that you're in today? Sure. So I kind of have like an, a, a, you know, somewhat of an interesting story. So my, my background is actually as an attorney. Uh, so I've spent a little over a decade, uh, part of my current position, I spent a little over a decade as a partner in a large law firm. Uh, and, you know, I tell everybody I had, uh, you know, you know, I, I couldn't ask for anything more with my legal career and, uh, you know, appreciate the trajectory that I had and, you know, certainly the financial benefits that was receiving. Um, but there became a certain point uh, when I, I remember sitting in church looking around and, uh, you know, looking at the needs of my community. And uh, we're in Fresno, uh, which some people know, some people don't know, but the Fresno region, the Central Valley of California produces more food than anywhere else in the world. And But many people don't know is that while we produce more food than anywhere else in the world, we also have the highest rates of food insecurity in the nation. Um, Fresno, while I, I love and am passionate about the, the Central Valley and, and living here, I do believe it gets a bad rap. Uh, it does have the highest, uh, for about a decade, has had um, among the highest, if not the highest concentration of, of poverty in the United States. And when that was coupled with the fact that we also have the highest concentration, the highest number of attended people attending church, that, that really struck me, that we have the most neighborhoods that reflect a creation that God didn't intend, yet the most people sitting in church pews, or the most, the most food, yet the most hungry people. And um, those dichotomies really struck me and, and kind of began a path where I was turn all my attention from, from what made me successful as attorney to investing in communities of poverty, which ultimately led me to becoming the CEO of the Fresno Mission. How do you translate that idea that you had this personal experience, this personal connection to the cause or to the problem, which got you into this work? 
how do you all bring that cause mission problem in, into your um, supporter engagement or how you all do fundraising for Fresno? You know, I think for me, you know, one of the benefits of an attorney, they, they wreck your mind for three years and then you go into practice and they, they make you hyper-focused on attaching solution, finding an issue, uh, finding a problem, identifying the issue with that problem, and then finding the solution to that issue and an, an argument for that. And I, I think that's one of the things that that I find in, in my uh, in, in this job. It's it's the same thing. You're being hyper focused on what is the issue, what is the argument, what's the response to that. You know, what's the response to that? You know that that issue. And I find that that is one of the you know one of the the things that's that's slightly unique about about uh, about me and, and kind of where we're we're shifting is. Being able to maybe look at this, and not to say a problem, but the issues associated with where we're on a given time frame with fundraising and how things evolve and being able to pinpoint issues and then specific solutions to kind of the problems or the issues or the, the call that's being, that, that, that's being laid out there. Um, and so I, I think that's why we've shifted a, a lot in, in, in the way that we fundraise um, that has not necessarily gone down the same path as traditional models. Yeah. And then let's dig into that a little bit because we we talked before the call about how, you know, there's kind of this traditional fundraising playbook, like large events, direct mail, major donor development. But there's indications in the market and just expression from our supporters that we need to transition to a new funding model. Um, how have you all or how have you led that transition at Fresno? And what, what does that even look like for you all today? You know, so I think in the words of John F. Kennedy, this, the time to repair the roof is when the sun is shining. And, um, you know, we, I, I kind of take, take that to heart is while we still have traditional platforms that are going really well, like direct, you know, like direct mail and, uh, you know, the same, certainly the, you know, same major donor solicitations. Um, and you know, you, you have somewhat traditional, you know, events, uh, you know, events that still can, can bring in some revenue. All of those three mediums uh, are, cha- are changing. Uh, direct mail is, will go away eventually, right? Like people, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 39. And, and if you're, you know, and somewhere in the, the same age bracket, I don't know any of my friends that really go to the mailbox on a regular basis, nor open up anything on a regular basis. Um, the 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 event space right um uh the people don't want to attend events like they used to attend events they they want something a different experience they want to be attached to things differently major donor solicitations um you know this is a really big one um because there is a we're in the process of going through the largest transfer of generational wealth in history. And what is happening is you're seeing this transfer from uh, privately owned businesses that were owned by the family patriarch that are now being, you know, transferred to kids or they're turned into corporations uh, or they just look much differently the decision-making is different. It's not like there's one guy at the top anymore. And so um, where, where we work, especially that has a lot to do with agriculture uh, that kind of came through the farming. Now they're so big that 
it's not you're just calling up the owner of the you know the big owner of, of the family farm no now now it's a corporation and it looks differently and so all of those three mediums um, have are are having to you're having to change and respond in different ways so what what are some of the you know in light of you kind of fixing the roof while the sun is shining what are some of the maybe experiments or new transitional kind of engagement models or fundraising approaches are you all experimenting with that fresno sure so i would say one of the biggest things that we are really focusing on is monthly giving um and and not necessarily saying hey would you give us a thousand dollars a month but more focusing on people giving you know you know as opposed to one person giving us you know a thousand dollars a month can we get you know 10 people or 100 people to give us 10 bucks a month um, or, you know, or a hundred bucks, you know, a hundred dollars a month and using as an opportunity to really get them, really get them attached to our mission. One of the big things that we say throughout everything that we do, everything that we do is moving everything from the transactional to the relational. And so, uh, the monthly giving is a big focus of that on the donor side. We want relationships with our donors and we don't want a transactional, you know, we don't want just a transaction where they, you know, go online and donate something and then, you know, Lee, we, we want them attached to our mission. And so part of what we're part of what we're doing is is certainly trying to ramp up our uh, ramp up our, our monthly monthly giving. And so that's done through you know different different ways. And certainly there's you know widgets on your website that you can, you know, certainly there's widgets on your website that you can do. But also part of it is just a shift in, in narrative. And so we recently had a fundraiser, right? And the main push behind the fundraisers typically is you get everybody in and you try and generate as much money on that night as possible with a one-time ask and one-time checks. And we actually structured our fundraiser to highlight, to highlight the monthly giving. And so the push was not how much money can we raise on, on this particular evening? It was how many people can we get to become monthly, you know, monthly donors. And that's not typically how those fundraisers are, uh, you know, those fundraisers are, are traditionally done. And we had really good, you know, we're still waiting. The numbers are still coming in, but we have really good, what we know so far is that we had really good uh, results from that. Um, we are coming up with, uh, we have come up with uh, an app um, that, you know, the shift, uh, the shift for the app that's a service-based app is, is about monthly giving. Uh, and so there's a variety of different things that we are, you know, that we're looking to do, uh, looking to do uh, differently and, and how we're onboarding people. Um, I would say as part of that too, is that we're not ignoring, um, you know, we're not ignoring opportunities to raise um, more money in the, in the lower dollar, uh, lower dollar amounts. Um, being able to, you know, one of the things that we regularly do is we do drives, right? There's food drives and can't, you know, turkey drives and there's, and there's uh, shoe drives, right? And gives us That's the opportunity. Classic. Yeah, <laughs> the classic drive. Yeah, the classic drives, right? And you know, normally there's, you're putting out a bucket in some church, um, but there's actually a lot more to leverage to that. So we we put out those buckets, you know. So we put out these boxes in different law firms and businesses, and the and the businesses are totally fine with us doing that. Well, now we have different technology. Now we can say, hey, if you don't. If you, you know, some people don't remember like, oh, I, I didn't work, came work day, I forgot to bring a turkey, right? Or I forgot to bring a pair of shoes. But we put something, you know, on the, the material on the box that has a QR code. And the QR code says right there, hey, you can, you know, you can donate in the box or donate now by, by, 
by you know going to this you know sh- clicking the QR code, which brings up another page that allows the person to either donate you know hey here's twenty dollars for a turkey or gives them the option of becoming hey give twenty dollars for a turkey and then continue that as a monthly donation. And so you know now we get to put these boxes in businesses and churches around town. And it, it's another opportunity for someone to say, yeah, I, I forgot the shoes or I forgot the socks, and but I can just do a QR code. And that's another potential way that people can get onboarded into, into giving or becoming a monthly donor. Absolutely. And I, I appreciated your note about moving from transactional to relational. And I think it's even, you, you know, you talked about this, this reorientation that it isn't just a donor or a supporter. They're actually like a partner in our mission. You know, like the monthly idea is a proxy for changing the relationship with the supporter from that, hey, I'm giving you money, Matt and Fresno, to do the work and rather being like, no, I'm going to commit to be a part of this. Um, And that monthly commitment is just the first step. But now you have a different conversation and relationship with that supporter. You mentioned about the narrative. How This is something that comes up a lot in our conversations with fundraisers is what is the narrative around your monthly giving? Is it just give monthly or is there a broader story that is then backed up by specific cultivation for monthly givers? How do you all uh, steward and cultivate the monthly program to feel more than just a recurring donation? So, I mean, I think part of what what our our big narrative is about being in community and relational. Um, And so um, everything that that we say, or at least we try to say is about kind of communicating that community-based, relational-based, non-transactional message. And that's, that's why that's an approach that we take trying to take with our donors, but that's an approach that we take. We want our donors to know that's, that's the approach we take with our clients. Right. And so we are constantly trying to communicate the, the relational aspect and the community-based aspect of what we do, as opposed to, Hey, for $2, you can provide a hot meal, right? People give to meals. They like giving to food. It just, you know, anybody in fundraising knows, especially the homeless industry knows that people give to the 65-year-old guy sleeping on the street who needs a hot meal. Like that face generates, you know, generates more income than other faces. It just does. But what we especially with our work. And I think that a lot of missions are in the same boat of you're caught in this place of saying, yeah, like we really passionate about feeding people. We really love, you know, providing, you know, these emergency services, but we're really passionate about changing people's lives. And how do you change your donor narrative to that? And so for us, so much of what we're doing right now in our future is about so much more than just, you know, feeding people and, you know, we're a site for a city college and you enroll as a city college, you know, when you're on our campus and there's just a host of different things that, that we think are so much more important than just feeding somebody. And so for us, part of the monthly giving is, is really trying to attach people to that message about, Hey, this is about building community. It's about building relationships with people. It's about life transformation. It's not just about giving a meal. And so we, we're, we're always in this process of trying to shift our donor narrative to what, where our heart is. So that, you know, we're really building relationships with those donors who are passionate about our, you know, passionate about something that we do that nobody else can do in our city. Yeah, no, and it's incredible. And I think, you you know, you talk about changing the narrative from transactional to relational. Um, you talked about this idea of moving from, you know, one-time gift focus to monthly. 
The other thing you mentioned that I would love to get um, a little bit more details in how you're approaching it is you mentioned this idea of transforming events, you know, your gala golf tournaments, you know, grandier events uh, to being more experiences. What does that practically look like at Fresno? And what are some examples of how you are creating experiences rather than events? Yeah. So I think the event space is one that's really, that's really like important for two reasons. Uh, first, events have been a traditional way of raising, you know, a good amount, you know, good amount of revenue, although not your main source of revenue, but they're really good for attaching people to your mission over the, the long term. But we are in a space now where everybody has an event. There is, you know, if you look on the social calendar, there is an event happening, you know, every weekend of the year. And if it's a, you know, if it's a good weather weekend, you can bet there's 10 events that night in your city. Right. And so you, you're in this deep competition for people, time, everyone's being asked to go to different events. This is on top of sporting events and date nights and all those types of things. So we're, we're in this space where people are really, especially in California, we say this all the time, people are, you're always in the competition for people's, for people's time on their, on their weekend, you know, weekend nights. Mm-hmm. And so we were looking at it and we had some historic events, which were traditionally really well attended. Um, but we also recognize that, um, that we were seeing where the age demographic was going and we knew that we had to do things to appeal to kind of the next generation, you know, next generation audience. And so one of the things that, and then we're in the midst of COVID, right? And so we knew we had to make some major pivots and, and so one of the, so we've done a couple of things, you know, so first we actually just had an event this past weekend where, because it was COVID, because um, some people are uh, in California, even though our numbers are, or we live, our numbers are really low. We know some people are, you know, people want to be still sensitive to COVID, but yeah, they still want to get out. So we had an event that was in a, a great outdoor setting where we brought in a bunch of different food trucks and live music Um and we made it more of like a date night where you could come and go as you please. We, we build it as something where this is not something where you, you come, you sit down at your table, someone's going to bring you food, you're going to listen to a program, you're going to get asked for money, and then you leave. We build it as this is completely come and go as you please. It's not a night you attend. It's a night that you experience. And what we had is that in the midst of that, we had different people would come and they could get access. They could choose their food. They could choose where they sit. They could choose what games they played. But in the midst of that, there was all these experiential things around the property. We had different vignettes. Uh, you actually walked in. When you walked in, there was a, a hundred yard. You actually walked through a hundred yards of what looked like a tent city with trash and, you know, tents and tarps and clothes. And just, it looked nasty, you know, kind of like, a you know, what the, the homeless camps look like. And then you walk through that into something that was much different. And so it was like we were taking the donor or the attendee through what we didn't want, which was people sleeping outside, which was the filth and the darkness of the street to something that was light. And then when they got in to kind of the, the, this outdoor area, there was different vignettes and stories that, that they could kind of access on their own that, you know, that, that, told different stories of the experience of somebody who was homeless and their experience of, of coming out of it. We were trying to, one of the things that we were trying to do in order to, 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 to raise money through monthly giving is we, we see about a thousand, you know, say a thousand kids in a year. So we actually got a thousand 
we did a shoe drive. We actually got a thousand pairs of shoes. We created a shoe tunnel. So you had a thousand shoes that were hanging on this tunnel and each shoe had a tag that had a name on it. Wow. And those were names written by people that were staying with us. And at the conclusion of this tunnel was a TV that basically said like each one of these shoes represents a story. And it's only a fraction of the people that we actually see, you know, and, and every single one of those shoes represents a story of a life that they did not deserve. And I said, you know, look, I, I walked up, I was wearing a pair of cold hands and, you know, I was in those because I had really good parents and they helped me. And I, I was, I've been able to, to, to have a, a great life and I didn't deserve any of it. And I, I didn't deserve any of that. I was, I won the luck of the, you know, luck of the draw. I won the life lottery with good parents. And every single one of these, these shoes represents a story who didn't get that. Yeah. And um, it was, you know, not a single person went to that tunnel that didn't walk out with a tag. Um, and it wasn't some guy on stage saying, Hey, there's an envelope on your table. Let's take some time to, you know, to write out your check. We really need it. And you know, the, the silence goes over the crowd and, or some like auction, right? It was a total experiential, um, meaningful, um, meaningful ask. Uh, so we, we got really good results from it. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And I appreciate you sharing some of those practical examples. Yeah, and another one, and I'll, yeah, I'll interrupt you, and I interrupt you just for another one. And we're doing this at the tail end of the, we're doing this in the, the end of the year. But, you know, you think about table sponsorships and, you know, traditionally you have this issue with, you know, table sponsorships are sold, right? And then the company, you want to make sure that people show up to actually sit at the table. You don't want an empty table at a banquet and, and, the, you know, your business will sponsor a table and they try and wrestle with people to get there. So they got, you know, 10 people at the seats. And, you know, we've, one of the other things that we've done is to shift away from that is, you know, at the end of the year, we're doing something else where we are in an effort to be creative. We're shutting down the entire street. Uh, in Fresno um, and, and setting up uh, what we're calling is the, the longest table. And so we're preparing a community meal. Uh, well, everybody that comes to the meal will receive, uh, you know, a box of food and a uh, box of food in addition to some other, other benefits codes, the coach will be matched with it. A lot of kind of relief items, but essentially we're having one huge, uh, you know, 200 yard long table. Instead of you sponsoring a table and coming sitting at the table to be served, we're actually telling people you're going to sponsor the table and then you're going to serve the table. So you ain't going to sit at it. Somebody else is going to sit at it that's in need, who actually needs the food, and you're going to serve it. And uh, so that's another way that we're pivoting off of, you know, the whole table sponsorship idea, as opposed to you sponsoring it and then getting served, you're sponsoring it and then serving it. So we've also got pretty good results so far, though it's still early. Um, you know, people have been responding to that idea as well. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it's something we talked to the big brothers, big sisters team in East Tennessee. And they said, what 2020 actually taught us was that we needed to focus, we needed to lean more on purpose rather than parties because the purpose in of itself raises money. And we, we over depended on parties to raise money in the past. Yep. Yeah. Um, one thing that comes up, to mine, and I know you and I have talked about this before as well, is this like ROI conversation, right? Like where do we invest our resources? How do we know? When do we take risks versus just doubling down on what we know has worked in the past? How do you think about measuring ROI when you're making some of these investments, these experiences, or even, you know, a risk like moving from big donations to monthly partnerships? Like 
you know, there's, there's a risk there. So how do you evaluate ROI when you're thinking about these decisions? So, yeah, I mean, ROI is such like an important, you know, important question. Um, you know, you, you see this with events, like you don't want to spend $100,000 on an event to make $110,000 in revenue, right? It just, it doesn't make, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. At the same time, at the same time, um, we have to measure, we, you have to be smarter at measuring ROI than just what is the check that somebody wrote at a given point in time? And what are the traditional ways that we have made investments to see the ROI? Like direct mail, right? Very easy to see like what's your ROI because if you have a direct mail provider, they're going to tell you like exactly what your ROI was. You spent this much, this is much how much acquisition they brought in. This is kind of like what uh, the life cycle of a donor uh, is worth. I mean, very statistical analysis. But we've also seen, we also know that that there are other mechanisms where the ROI is less clear, and yet we know that there's substantial value. And I would probably say one of the most significant ways that we have seen this has been with volunteerism. And so, Volunteerism, while the primary objective for us for volunteerism is getting people engaged into ministry work that changes their life. But we also know and have come to understand that the more volunteers you have, the more people are being attached to your mission, the more they're attached to your work, the more the, just naturally the, the greater chance they are to become donors. And um, while turning volunteers into donors is not the primary driver of a volunteer. It is a natural benefit. And so one of the things that we've explored is, well, what's the, what, what is the value of putting in another $50,000 into acquisition, you know, mail acquisition versus hiring another person so that you can onboard more volunteers, um, more volunteers. And, you know, if, if, if you have a person who can onboard or can kind of steward a thousand more volunteers in a year, well, what's the percentage chance that 10% of those volunteers might actually turn into donors? If you get a hundred out of those a thousand to turn into donors, like what's the, what's the ROI on that? And not only what's the one-time ROI, what's the long-term ROI? I mean, if you're attaching people through something they are experiencing, then that, that to me, you could, you could make, deeper roots. Uh, you know, I think kind of an interesting example we have of this is, you know, we, we, there was one kind of institutional funder that we had been trying to get in front of for some time. And um, there was a particular gentleman who was kind of like the, 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 the big manager, you know, he, he was the money guy in the area, the, 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 the area. And he had a pretty big territory and, you know, senior VP and all that. And we, you know, I've been trying to get in front of him and he was riding in, he was, uh, he was riding in a tax or an Uber and the Uber driver was going on and on about this volunteer experience that he had at our, at the mission, at the Fresno mission. And that prompted him to contact me out of the blue and wanting to set up a meeting and a tour. And that was completely driven by somebody's volunteer experience, you know, like, so all the calling that we did, it was his the reason that we got a meeting was from something that somebody else experienced. And, um, and so that was, a, yeah. So, so you're like, what's the ROI of a volunteer? Uh, well, it could be pretty high. 
so I think that's definitely one of the ways that we've tried to rethink this idea of, of ROI. Yeah, for sure. And I think for so long, we were all taught like measuring success through the direct response lens, when now we have the opportunity to kind of take an expanded, more holistic view and really evaluate the, the whole value of a supporter, both direct and influenced. Um, and one of the challenges is just getting visibility on that. And that's something I know here at Virtuous we're trying to solve for is how do we enable nonprofit teams to have better visibility into the full value of the partnership with any individual supporter. The last thing I wanted to land on, actually, actually two things. One was you've used this word radical partnership in the past. Can you kind of unpack that and some applicable ways that you all are implementing radical partnership at Fresno? Yeah. So, um, so, so we're big believers in, in radical partnership. And for what, for, for what that means for us is really devoting ourselves fully to the idea of, of partnering with people and partnering with people in ways where, you know, rising tides raise, raise all boats and really trying to, to, to lean into giving up so much of the, the, the inward focus on us and the, the focus on the collective and trying to um, focus on, on you can work together, you can do things together, and there is enough that, that can directly benefit you. Um, I think one of the big, the big things that we, we try and take to heart and believe in is that we believe in a God of abundance and not a God of scarcity. Um, and so a dollar for my partner organization doesn't mean the lack of a dollar for me. Um, if somebody gives to a partner organization, it doesn't mean that they're not going to give to me. And we have a God who has, we have a God and we're a faith-based ministry. Uh, so we have a God who is the, the God of the, the, the five loaves to 5,000. And, and we believe in that God of abundance. And, and so we have taken that to heart. And so we do things and we actively do things to uh, help promote uh, other organizations, help the intern help each other. So we actually have two events, uh, two things that we do um, where we fundraise with other organizations. And what that has done is given us a a louder trumpet, uh, a louder kind of megaphone um, in order to do some of these, these things. And so that's, that's both been on the experiential side in terms of some of the things that we've done. So we we did, uh, you know, during COVID, right. We, we did, um, uh, a huge, a huge giveaway, a huge, uh, we call it the great chicken giveaway, right? When food scarcity was really an issue. And we partnered with the food bank, uh, the local food bank here, and we brought resources to the table and they brought resources to the table. And we did this together. And the fact that we we're doing this together, uh, which we were kind of the two largest organizations, um, it allowed for a greater megaphone. And it ended up being a very, very successful event. It was so successful, it shut down all the freeways. And if I wasn't getting out of food, uh, I probably got in deep trouble for with the city. Um, but it provided like a really good megaphone for both of us to kind of talk about what we do. And you know what, that wasn't like a direct fundraising event, but it became a lot of people saw what we were doing. And then now we, we are doing a direct fundraising event together at the year end. And that, that table event that I mentioned, that longest table, we're using it to partner, to talk about the food continuum, how people that, you know, we're the largest hot meal provider and the food bank is the largest kind of grocery provider. And we're using it as an opportunity to talk about the food continuum and where the needs are. Mm-hmm. And 
we've been able to approach this thing together to not only solve some of these food insecurity problems, but we're also be able to say work to them saying, hey, we want to raise money surrounding this. And, you know, we're going to get, we're getting good response because now when you go to a business, you're like, wait a second, I can, I can donate to an event that has the two largest, you know, the two largest kind of visible organizations. Like that's a win-win. I mean, that's a huge win. And so we've been able to, you know, we've been able to work with multiple organizations where we can fundraise, do some of these experiential service-based events, and then do some very experiential fundraising events together. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And I think there's a lot of value in that, especially as a community-based organization with, you know, a shared vision for the community. Um, And even finding ways to collaborate beyond that. We had another organization that was in the Charlotte area where they actually hosted like a symposium of sorts with a bunch of other stakeholders in the community just around the impact on children because of COVID early on, they hosted this like virtual event, but they pulled in various stakeholders and it wasn't a fundraiser, but they were trying to showcase this idea of partnership, even amongst um, like-minded organizations serving a similar cause because they wanted to pull all those perspectives together and be able to showcase how the community was going to fill the gaps um, for children during, you know, COVID uh, or when that first kind of broke loose. So yeah, definitely interesting and a lot of great examples. I appreciate you sharing your story, Matt, and what Fresno is doing. I want to end on a big question. I think most leaders in your seat or even chief development officers are thinking about, which is this idea that is like, what does post COVID look like? And so I'm curious how you're thinking about that question um, and then how that's influencing, you know, the, the next 12 months of your planning and budgeting and thought process? I know it's a big question, but would love, you know, a little bit of what you're thinking about and then any guidance you would provide other leaders as they consider that question for their organization. Yeah, sure. So I I think, you know, I think times of crisis puts a a magnifying glass on your strengths and puts a magnifying glass on your weaknesses. And as we, I think we have seen through many different things with COVID while it's being so extremely difficult, and obviously, it's resulted in so much loss of life and loss of businesses. Um, and, you know, there, there's been so much negative. Um, the, the reaction to COVID, some of the things that we, we, we along with all businesses, have had to do um, with COVID are going to stay. Uh, stay. And, and I think that I don't want to say that COVID is a benefit, but have there been benefits that have come out of COVID? Yes, Right. And I want to make that distinction clear. Hey, COVID, don't want COVID, not saying that it's been a good thing. But with what we've been forced to do, there has been positive things that have been come out of that. And I think that's that's true with COVID, uh, with COVID, with, with fundraising. Uh, I think for COVID, it really required us to rethink, rethink events. And you know what? That rethinking of events is producing something that we're we're not going to go back to the old way of doing events. Um, and that's a, we're really excited about that. COVID has forced us to do more in terms of, um, um, non-event, uh, revenue generating, right. And so more of the, the monthly giving and how we're, how we're doing, how we're doing that remotely. Those are things that we're not going to push back from. In fact, we had to, we had to really focus on them, you know, focus on them more. Um, and so I think that's something that that even when we're beyond COVID, like we'll, we will never go back from. We're always going to continue kind of 
going down that road. I think the, the biggest question, the thing that everybody has is most relief organizations, us included, saw an influx of, of money coming in during, during COVID. Uh, people were very generous during that season. So what does it look like when you're, you know, when you're out of that season? And certainly some, some of those donors are going to be converted to uh, long-term, you know, long-term donors, which is, you know, which is the hope. Uh, but what kind of continues to happen when we're, you know, when we're not in COVID? I think it's just a big question that, you know, that everybody has. Um, I think fortunately, I think everybody kind of feels like, yeah, I'm not going to go, I shouldn't go backwards, meaning I shouldn't go, you know, to less donors than I had before COVID. And I should be able to capture some of those donors that came to me during COVID, but we know there's going to be a decrease in 20, you know, 21, 22 than there was in 2000, you know, 2020. And so I think that that involves like a lot of financial planning, right? Um, you can't just expect that 2020 is just going to happen every single year. Um, but it also requires us requires us to kind of change the way that, that we're also looking at donors in terms of, okay, repivoting, reposition how we're doing events, repositioning what we're focusing on for, for monthly giving, uh, monthly giving and, and those types of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are some great questions um, and things many of our listeners are likely listening or thinking of through right now. But that idea of being flexible and even how you think about the future, it even the skills we learned last year are still applicable today. We still need to be thinking about pivoting, thinking about experimenting, thinking about the future of our businesses and our funding models and fundraising programs. So I appreciate you highlighting that throughout today's conversation. You know, we talked a lot about moving from transactional to relational, reconsidering how while traditional fundraising programs are still performing, we consider new funding models uh, with monthly giving, uh, thinking about the volunteer experience, and then also just even reevaluating how we measure ROI of our programs and look at things like radical partnership with others. So grateful for the summary. Is there any final things you would provide listeners as we head out um, from today's conversation, Matt? No, I think we, we covered a lot today. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to be here and, and uh, for, for being able to listen to us and to share some of our insights. Thanks, Matt. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. Podcast.